Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm Chris Case, and we are joined today by, of course, Coach Trevor Connor and Adam St. Pierre. Adam, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Chris. And Adam is the current head coach of the Nordic ski team up at Montana State University, but has plenty of experience in the cycling world, in the running world. He's a former physiologist and jack of all trades at the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine, which those in Colorado listening will know that that name, hopefully, and it kind of evolved into what became the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center. So a lot of diverse experience, and we want to hit you today with some questions that have to do with both skiing and cycling and, and sort of general physiology, if that's okay with you, Adam. Yeah, that's what you asked me on to do, so I am prepared to do that. Excellent. Hey listeners, we're pleased to announce the release of our eighth pathway. Our newest pathway is focused on exercise in the cold. Just in time for the chill of winter exercise, members of Fast Talk Labs can explore the best ways to train in cold weather and how colder temps affect our performance. The Exercise in the Cold pathway features Dr. Stephen Chung, one of the world's leading environmental physiologists, as well as Dr. Inigo San Milan, our Canadian CEO and coach Trevor Connor, and Dr. Andy Pruitt. Winter training isn't as simple as just adding another layer. Follow our Exercise in the Cold pathway to learn more. Let's start off with a question that pertains to your current profession as head coach up at the uh, Montana State with the Nordic Ski Team. This question comes to us from an Ashley Mason. He's in California. He writes, since cross-country skiing is full body, and pushes higher stroke volume than cycling can, could there be a really beneficial way to do VO2 max training in the early season, then focus on extending threshold and adding specificity on the bike as you get closer to your race? Adam, what would you say here? So I think I, I think Ashley is on a, an interesting track. You know, it's certainly correct that, that cross-country skiing utilizes a greater percentage of the total musculature of the body than cycling. Cross-country skiing utilizes, you know, not just the legs, but also a significant core contribution as well as, as upper body, shoulders, triceps, lats. So purely because of a greater amount of muscle mass being used, you know, you will see higher VO2 uh, utilization in cross-country skiing than cycling. Often that correlates with, with a higher heart rate at a similar effort. So, you know, your, your Z1 or your L1 endurance ride may be five or 10 beats per minute lower than, than a, a Z1 or an L1 endurance ski. So important to kind of adjust your training zones or your expectations of what will feel easy, you know, based on that knowledge. And then you add into the fact that, that skiing has a, a large technique component that may, may further elevate that discrepancy between cycling and skiing. Now, what I found interesting about this question is trying to use skiing, not just as you know, a way to get some endurance work off the trainer during the winter months, but actually to get a specific physiological gain, you know, from skiing that you certainly could get from cycling, but uh, maybe you could get it uh, not necessarily easier, but to, to a larger extent skiing. Well, so that was the question that, that I wanted to ask or that I was thinking about, and I couldn't find any research on this, is how much does the adaptations from skiing transfer over to cycling? That would be my, my exact thought is, you know, I think incorporating ski training is likely to 
increase VO2 max purely because you're getting, you know, some training of the, the upper body and core musculature that you're not getting on a bike. So it may increase, you know, the, the number in lab testing, you know, push you from a, a 60 to a 62 or whatever. But whether that correlates with improved cycling performance, I can't really say. I don't think that's been been shown or proven. What I can say, though, is that you, know, you take a, a cross-country skier, you have them do an uphill time trial, whether it's running or on a bike. Typically, what we are feeling is that our legs are screaming at us and we're hardly out of breath. Yep. So by that anecdote, you know, I, I would think that incorporating cross-country ski training and, and trying to improve VO2 max through cross-country skiing would have some measurable performance improvement in cycling. One possible mechanism there is that you know, the, the upper body musculature is, is then taking, you know, lactate and other metabolic byproducts out of the blood, you know, recycling them for energy and, and allowing the, you know, legs to perhaps work slightly more anaerobically without going into a full body, you know, acidosis kind of state. So I, I would tell Ashley, you know, get, get on skis and, and do some VO2 max work on skis in the winter. And, and hopefully that would provide not only a nice break from, from trainer riding, but also, a plausible mechanism for improvement in your cycling. Very good. Well, let's uh, let's move on to another question here. This one comes from uh, Rodney Simpson. He's in North Carolina, and he writes, what is your explanation of oxygen debt and oxygen deficit? Is the latency heart rate at the beginning of applying power for a zone three interval due to O2 debt or O2 deficit? Also, the duration to return to pre-zone three interval heart rate due to fitness or fatigue. Trevor, I'll start here with you on this one. So why don't I start by, I will quickly define oxygen deficit and oxygen debt. And then Adam, you can, you can take it from there and talk about uh, training effects and, and what it means. But these are terms that are thrown around a lot. And, and I admit I've often used them without really explaining what they are. So here's a good opportunity. Oxygen deficit is what you see at the start of an effort. So you're riding along slow, you do some intervals. If you were hooked up to a metabolic cart and we were recording your oxygen uptake, even though your power just shot up dramatically, you would see a slow rise in oxygen consumption. And that is your oxygen deficit. You can also see it in heart rate. So that's why when you start intervals, you don't immediately see heart rate go up to where you would expect for that given power. It can take time. Oxygen debt is on the flip side. So you finish an interval and you drop down to say 80 watts, your oxygen consumption doesn't immediately go down to what you would expect for 80 watts. Likewise, heart rate doesn't immediately come down. So there's, there's a slow drop. And that's called the, the oxygen debt because it's, think of it as you, you have a debt that you have to pay and you're still paying it even though the intervals are done. That's how I always think about it because you can easily get debt and deficit mixed up. So I always remember debt is you, you're, paying, you're paying afterwards. So that's the start. Adam, do you want to take it from there and, and say what all this means for, for training? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's funny. I started the same way. You know, deficit is the sort of the, the dynamic, you know, ongoing level of sort of oxygen, no, oxygen deficit. And then the debt is what you, you pay back at the end. Try to remember that in terms of the, you know, the federal government. <laughs> Except that debt never ends. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's an interesting, interesting to think about whether fatigue or fitness contribute to to oxygen, you know, deficit and oxygen debt. And I guess the 
the answer is, you know, is it fatigue or is it fitness? And the answer is yes. Uh, it, it's a little bit of both. Um, and you can't really discern which it is. I think often the, the initial oxygen deficit is, is related to warm up. You know, if you don't do a, a good warm up and you just start jamming your intervals, typically, you know, you get that larger bit of oxygen deficit. Whereas if you're well warmed up, you know, you do some intensity within the warm up. Um, once you start the main set of the workout, you know, hopefully you see a pretty, pretty quick rise in, you know, VO2 use, uh, oxygen kinetics, as well as a, a quicker rise in heart rate to the expected heart rate value for whatever your, your workload is. Here's where cycling is, is easily the most convenient sport to, to utilize because you have such a nice, clean power output measurement compared to, you know, running, swimming, and cross-country skiing. Um, so I think, you know, warm-up can decrease that initial oxygen deficit probably, you know, more than fitness uh, or fatigue. Often you'll see people in a fatigue state who, you know, they, they warm up, they begin a workout and they just, you know, they can't get their heart rate up or their heart rate won't go up despite them feeling like they're working at an appropriate workload. So I don't know if that's necessarily related to oxygen deficit, but as a coach, if you're unable to elevate your heart rate at the start of a, an intensity workout, that's typically a sign to me that we need to incorporate more rest into the program. So yeah. Rarely is it a good idea to just crank through the rest of that workout. Often it's best to either shift gears and, and make it a recovery workout or go home and take a nap if that's an option. Yep. No, I'd agree with that. The thing I will add here that I think is really important to understand is when you're seeing oxygen deficit and oxygen debt, you are seeing the body compensating with anaerobic metabolism. So, so let, let me explain that. So let's say you're doing intervals and those intervals are still within your aerobic range. So let's say your, your threshold power is 300 and you're doing intervals at 280, 290. So your body's capable of producing pretty well all of that energy aerobically. Doesn't mean that as soon as you jump up to that 290, you're instantly producing all the energy aerobically. That's the deficit. It takes time for that whole aerobic machinery to kick into gear and so your body's going to compensate and say, well, I can only right now produce, say, 210 watts aerobically. So that extra 70, 80 watts, we're actually going to produce with anaerobic metabolism until that aerobic system kicks up. One of the major factors in that, and this is what I studied in my exercise physiology courses, is mitochondrial density. The more mitochondria you have in the cell, the more sensitive they are to a buildup of, of ADP which is basically your cell's way of saying, I'm running out of energy here, do something. So the quicker the aerobic machinery of the cell's going to respond and the less oxygen deficit you have. So I always look at the oxygen deficit. If I see a huge oxygen deficit in an athlete, that tells me their aerobic machinery is probably not as strong as it could be and they're being very reliant on anaerobic machinery, where if you take a very aerobic animal you know, like a, a time trialist, you're going to see they'll go up to that threshold power and their heart rate's going to come up almost as quickly. There's going to be very little oxygen deficit. I think, you know, Trevor nailed it with the mitochondrial density and could almost use mitochondrial density as a, a synonym for, for fitness, at least when you're thinking about endurance-based sports. And so, yeah, definitely a, a more fit person will, will see a lower oxygen deficit most of the time. You know, when I, when I started thinking about this question, I was reminded of some workouts that I've utilized in the past where you actually track the time for heart rate to return, you know, to a baseline or to a level one after a hard effort. And then you have a, a cutoff where 
you know, once that recovery time increases significantly, like for instance, when that recovery time doubles, then the workout's over. So I've used it with, uh, with athletes on the track. You know, you run a, a flat out 400. As soon as your heart rate dips down to level one, you, you hit another 400. And the goal of the workout is to do as many 400s as you can in a set amount of time. You know, whether that's 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes. And you'll see that the, the athletes who are, are just generally fitter, it takes longer for their recovery time to really jump up and they're able to do more 400s, not because they're running each individual 400 faster, but because their recovery time stays, you know, in the one to two minute realm instead of creeping up into the three or, or four or even five minute realm. You know, that's the kind of workout I've often used sort of early season, late season as a, a marker of fitness. So, you know, if an individual does 12 400s in, in 30 minutes early season and they do 18 400s in 30 minutes late season, you know, that's the sign that they are overall getting fitter, even if their you know, time for each individual 400 hasn't changed. Yeah. And actually you, you bring up a really good point there, the importance of training this. And that goes back to the, the question about, is it fatigue or not? I'm actually looking at an older study here that's called decrease of oxygen deficit as a potential factor in increased time to exhaustion after specific endurance training, which is a mouthful, but it's basically saying if you can decrease that oxygen deficit, your time to exhaustion is actually going to extend out. You, you can do more efforts before you fatigue. And it makes a certain amount of intuitive sense because if that oxygen deficit's bad and you're being reliant on those anaerobic energy pathways, they're limited. For all intents and purposes, your aerobic pathways are not. So if you are, say, in a race and doing these constant hard efforts, you have to really rely on anaerobic metabolism for that, even though you're at a power level that, that you could produce aerobically, that's going to fatigue you. All right, very good. Let's move on to an, another question here, shall we? This one comes from a Kjeld Bontenball. He's in the Netherlands. I hope I pronounced his name correctly. And he writes, where resting heart rate and HRV, heart rate variability, seem to be proper guidelines for cardiovascular recovery, how about muscle recovery? As a speed skater, I often find my resting heart rate and HRV quote-unquote, at rest, while my legs still feel sore. The soreness translates itself into lower power output in both the aerobic and anaerobic area. It makes me wonder, what is a good measure to determine the recovery state of the muscles? When the legs feel sore, should I give them more rest for optimal supercompensation? Trevor, shall I start with you here a little bit? I know this is another question that you spent some time answering on our forum. Yeah, and actually, this was the question that I started by saying I only have a minute to answer and then spent 45, but they're both really good questions. I, I bet you fun. do that a lot, don't you? Yes, <laughs> I tend to do that a lot. Yeah. I try to give myself this little out of, I only have two minutes, I'm going to answer, uh, give you a quick answer, and then I just get into writing the answer, and suddenly it's 45 minutes later. <laughs> well, give us the cliff notes of that, of that research that you did. There's no actual cliff notes because basically my whole answer is this is a really complicated question. And even Ryan responded first and basically said he had to think about it for a while to come up with anything because it's, it's a tough question. Mm -hmm. So, Adam, maybe we can go back and forth on this, but I'll start by basically confusing everybody <laughs> by saying generally, so he's talking about soreness the first thing we need to figure out is what is causing that soreness. So generally when you have muscle soreness, you're dealing with DOMS, which is delayed onset muscle soreness. 
Now, the theory behind DOMS is that it is caused by muscle damage, muscle tearing that's a result of eccentric activity. There's not a lot of eccentric activity in cycling. I don't believe there's a lot in speed skating either, so that's why you don't tend to get a lot of soreness. I'm imagining speed skaters do a fair amount of plyometric training, and I'm guessing you know, either their strength training or their plyometric training is probably at the root of much of the muscle soreness he's experiencing. Yep. And I still think that that initial contact on the ice with your skate, even though you're trying to be smooth, there is a braking motion. So I do think there's going to be some eccentric activity, but I'm not a skating expert. I've, I've never analyzed that motion. The point being, DOMS is usually caused by eccentric activity. There was a belief that it's it's muscle damage, but now there's a new theory that, no, it's not muscle damage, it's actually inflammation. So that then brings in something called EIMD, which is um, exercise-induced muscle damage, which, depending on what you believe, is the same thing as DOMS or something slightly different, but also, again, generally caused by eccentric activity. And then the point that Ryan raised is muscle soreness can also be caused by uh, blood flow occlusion, which ends up looking a lot like DOMS. So whole lot of potential explanations here and, and theories, and, and uh, I hope I've just absolutely baffled and confused everybody. <laughs> yeah, I think there's lots of theories as to why you know the, the muscles themselves are sore, but I haven't seen any research on how muscle soreness would be related to, to heart rate or to heart rate variability. I do know that with some apps, uh, I've used uh, HRV for training in the past. It was, it was years ago, but at that time, there was both a measurement of HRV as well as a quick questionnaire. And one of the questions was like, you know, are your muscles sore? Zero to 10 scale. So I know a lot of the, I don't know for sure about WHOOP and and other things, but I think many algorithms that uh, attempt to use heart rate variability in a uh, a larger scale to guide training decisions, often they have a perceptive measure or a perceptual measure where you know, they're asking simple questions like, do you feel tired? Are your muscles sore? So even if muscle soreness doesn't factor in directly into, you know, a heart rate response or a heart rate variability, it's certainly something to keep an eye on as you you plan your daily training. And from a coaching perspective, you know, it is, it's pretty rare that I would recommend someone do a, a hard workout, you know, with sore muscles. You know, if, if you're sore from a, you know, the, the workout the day before, then you know, easy endurance training is probably fine, a, a distance ride or a, a long run, but it's pretty rare I would encourage someone to, to go out and push you know, intervals or, or race on sore legs if it's avoidable. Yep. Listeners, Chris and I are excited about an upcoming milestone here at Fast Talk. On January 27th, we will release our 200th Fast Talk episode. We're proud to have brought you 200 episodes featuring the world's most respected and influential experts in training, physiology, sports nutrition, bike fit, recovery, sports medicine, plus some bad jokes about Canada. So we have a very special 200th episode planned for you, and we'd like you to be a part of it. Record your best questions on your smartphone recorder app and email them to info at fasttalklabs.com by January 1st. Any topic is fair game. But we are especially excited to hear your questions about the future of endurance sports. So again, record your questions and send them to info at fasttalklabs.com. So to go back to your point about heart rate availability and heart rate, the, the only theory I have here is 
I think the sort of activity that you would do that causes this sort of muscle soreness is also going to cause some autonomic stress. I know autonomic stress can blunt parasympathetic nervous system. I think it can also blunt the sympathetic. So my guess would be if you're causing some of that autonomic stress, you're going to see your, your heart rate variability tank a bit. I don't think the soreness is causing that directly. I, I think it just coincides. And this is why it ended up taking me 45 minutes to answer this, because I went back and found some old research I hadn't read in a while that it, it reminded me of and I got kind of excited about. There's a, a really good study called, Is Recovery Driven by Central or Peripheral Factors? A Role for the Brain in Recovering Following Intermittent Sprint Exercise. And it's actually a really complicated study, and it's, it's, a, it's a good read. It's, it's really interesting. But the gist of it is they basically say that the soreness and recovery have both a peripheral and a central component, and they don't always line up. So you can feel recovered when you're actually not recovered. So the soreness isn't always a good indicator is basically the gist of, of what this study says. And likewise, it goes on to say a lot of these markers, including they, they did blood test markers. I don't think they specifically looked at heart rate variability and heart rate, but the point they were trying to make in the study is a lot of these markers you'd use actually don't correlate well with recovery. They, they might get back to normal and say, oh, you're good to train when you're actually not good to train to make it even more complicated. So the suggestion I gave here, and Adam, interested in hearing your reaction to this, the one thing that was common in all these studies, whether you're talking about muscle damage or inflammation or central or, or peripheral factors, is that A, eccentric activity is key, and B, all this damage and inflammation is in fast-twitch muscle fibers. So I think the best way, and this is what I use with my athletes to see if they're not recovered yet, is to look at top-end kind of sprint or neuromuscular efforts because those are the sort of efforts when you have that sort of muscle damage that you just can't put out the same effort. You can't put out the same power. And I think whether you're feeling sore or not, if you go and do a sprint and suddenly you're 200 watts below what you'd normally expect or just you're really struggling to sprint, that's probably a good indicator that you're still not recovered. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I think you nailed it. The best sign that you're not recovered is a inability to perform normal training, right? So if you're used to sprinting at 700 watts and you go out and you start a workout and you're only sprinting at 500 watts, it doesn't matter what your heart rate or your heart rate variability is. You know, that's a sign right away that your your body's not ready for that workout. Hey, you guys didn't once mention the stair test here. I thought you would. I, I'm actually, I'm racking my brain they did a study after the West, I think it was Western States Endurance Run and after the Tarawera 100K, where they they looked at typical measures of muscular recovery. You know, after ultra runs, you've got, you know, CPK through the roof and, and all the typical measures of muscle damage are just unbelievably high because of the, the eccentric forces of running for that long. And I was at a conference a couple of years ago where they tracked those markers for, you know, 24, 48, 72 plus hours after an event. But I think they also looked at people's, it was either one mile times, or maybe they were doing 400s to see if any of those markers correlated with, you know, an, an actual decrease in, in sprint performance or in, in high intensity performance. And I wish I could remember the details of it. I'm blanking on it, but I know it's on the tip of my tongue. Well, if you think of it, send it to us. We can, certainly we can put the study in our references. Yeah, I'll see if I can find that. 
Yeah. That seems awfully cruel, I must say, on the surface of things. If you've just run Western States and two days later they're like, okay, go out and run as fast as you can in the mile or 400 or whatever, that sounds terrible. Well, there's a contingent led by this gentleman, Mike Wardian, who lives out in the sort of the greater D.C. area, and he's a, he's a serial racer. He races all the time. But I think after every 100-miler he does, the next day he runs a one-mile one all-out. So he just finds you know a track wherever he happens to be and, and runs it. And uh, you know people will go and join him. And it's quite masochistic. And then you think there's also a contingent that runs a beer mile a day or two before you know those same races. So, um, <laughs> but you see, that's just good prep. Level. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you keep the beer up after you're done running. <laughs> yeah, that's the old school method of carb loading, right? <laughs> yes. Very good. Well, let's move on to a question here that comes to us from a James Cooper. He's out in Alameda, California, and it is in a bit of a response to our question in response to episode 185 of Fast Talk. In that episode, we discussed different training methods across different endurance sports with Dr. Steven Seiler. We brought up rowing, skiing, running, all sorts of things. Check that episode out first if you haven't. But James's question here is, I have a question about mixing two sports in a single workout. As it was discussed in the episode, running frequently beyond 90 minutes or so will start to accumulate considerable stress on the joints and muscles, which in part explains why runners don't do three to four hour long slow runs. I'm curious, though, if doing something like a 90-minute easy zone one in a three-zone model ride on the trainer to jumpstart some muscle fatigue and then doing a 60-minute zone one run would be of any benefit. Conversely, would a 60-minute run prior to a 90-minute zone one ride allow a cyclist to get some of the gains normally seen on longer four-hour-plus LSD rides? As a father of three young children... These four-hour endurance sessions are really not in the cards. This really is a response or a question in response to that episode 185, but in some ways I feel like it touches upon some things we we discussed in the two-a-days episode of, uh, I don't want to put words in James's mouth here, but can you cheat your way out of having to do the four-hour rides to get those benefits? I, I want to jump on this one, Chris. The first thing I got to say is that runners do do three to four hour long slow runs, maybe not, you know, half marathoners, marathoners, but my beloved type of running is in trail ultra running where three to four hour runs are just the, just the beginning. But I think it's a really interesting question. Again, my background is cross-country skiing. I take offense to the term cross training. It's just training. (laughs) You may be training on a bike or you may be training running or may be training skiing. So, you know, mixing modalities is is regularly done in a lot of sports, you know, triathlon being the most obvious example. Mm-hmm. You know, in triathlon, often they are biking and then running because that's the most specific form of training for their event. But I've worked with runners, you know, recovering from injury who may, you know, do their, their run first because maybe they can only tolerate, you know, 60 minutes of running stress, and then they'll hop on a bike for an hour or two. And that's a way for them to get a you know, a three-hour endurance workout in with the first hour being, you know, the most specific to them. Whereas if they were to fatigue their legs with an hour or two bike ride first and then do the 60-minute run, that could increase the the likelihood of injury from that run, running mm-hmm. on fatigued legs. Right. Like that being said, you know, ultra runners, you know, run on fatigued legs all the time. 
it's sort of a given in ultra training that you'll do you know some back-to-back long runs or you'll do a hard workout and then a longer run or you'll do double some days i think the benefits from this type of workout are largely psychological you know what it's like to be running and have your legs be a little fatigued be a little sore and i think those are are, are kind of unique to to the ultra running world and probably not something that's that that should be taken up into other training for other sports in general, you want to do the, the hardest workout first, the most stressful workout first. So, you know, if, if you run for an hour and, and ride for an hour, I think that's a pretty good, good two hour workout. Trevor, I want to turn to you, though, and ask the question, I guess, my guess is James is really asking if I run up to 60 minutes before I do my ride, does that somehow equate to the same thing as a four hour right. bike ride? And what are the gains? Yeah, my interpretation of the question is getting at this whole idea that an hour of running is usually considered equal to like two and a half hours on the bike. So if you do that hour of running, have you, and then you get on the bike and do another 90 minutes, well, if you equate an hour of running to two and a half hours of cycling, then you've got your four hours. Mm-hmm. Right. I actually looked. I could find zero research on this. It might exist. I couldn't find it. So this is totally my opinion, my guess. I think you're going to get some benefits. So I even put in my notes going with what you're saying, Adam, is it's all good training. You're going to get adaptations from both. So you're going to get good adaptations from the running. You're going to get good adaptations from the cycling. And you are going to get, when you're talking about those those central factors that are less sports-specific, you're going to get good training to both. But the question that we get hit a lot with, I still remember the one email I got where somebody said, Heard your episode about the long ride. Uh, you know, I'm fully on board. I fully get it. There's a benefit to the five-hour ride. You can't get any other way. I just have one question for you. Is there a way you can skip those first three hours and get the benefits of the last two? Yes. <laughs> and I'm going to give to this question the same answer I gave to that, which is, in my opinion, unfortunately, no. There are benefits you get from that longer ride or, as Adam said, that longer run that I don't think you can get any other way. There's no way to cheat it. And I fully get what he's saying. He's got a life. He can't go out for the four-hour ride. I think there are benefits that you're going to lose. Now, can you still get to be really strong and be a good athlete and very competitive and get 90% of the way there? Yes. But I think there's things you gain from that longer ride that you can't gain without doing the time. It's funny, you know, at the end of long runs or long ski workouts, you know, people start to think, well, you know, two and a half hours is, is long enough or, or three hours is long enough. And my response to that with the athletes I coach is to say, do you guys know what the most important, you know, half hour of the workout is? The last half hour. Yep. So, you know, if, if you've got a three hour ride on the schedule and, and you have the time to get a three hour ride in, you'll get that three hour ride in. An interesting thing in, in cross-country skiing that, you know, isn't as, as seen in cycling because of the technique component is that it's pretty rare to have cross-country skiers go beyond three hours uh, of skiing at a time. A three-hour ski is a, is a long session. But, you know, sometimes in the summer or, you know, during a big volume block, we may want to do a longer session. And typically what we would do is, you know, do a, do a three-hour ski and then an hour run or, or a three-hour ski and then an hour bike. So we're, we're adding volume, but not in the same modality. So to get to that four hour session, you know, maybe it's a two hour skate ski and a two hour classic ski, which are different enough to, to utilize different muscles and, and prevent extreme fatigue. And what we're trying to avoid by doing a 
you know, a four or a five hour cross country ski is, you know, if late in the, the ski, your technique falters and you're, you know, ingraining bad habits. So it's pretty rare for me to, to utilize cross country ski workouts longer than three hours of one technique. If you look at elite cross country skiers, you know, most are training twice a day, nearly every day, you know, whether it's a, a ski session in the morning and a strength workout in the afternoon or uh, a run session in the morning and a recovery bike in the afternoon or, you know, any, any combination of, you know, either two aerobic workouts or, you know, one aerobic workout and one strength workout. And it's not necessarily that they don't have the time to do four or five hours at a time. You know, certainly my college athletes, uh, because of class, often don't have four to five hour training blocks. But the idea of, of doing doubles and doing different techniques regularly or different modalities regularly is to prevent overburdening, you know, the muscles that, that work primarily in, in any one technique and to just kind of be remain well-rounded, get the most volume in that you can without overworking any one, uh, any one system or any one area. Well, I think there's real benefits from mixing up these sports, as you're, you're saying, you know, doing some work in one that's high quality and then trying to do some work in another that's high quality, particularly from a health benefit. Uh, I do feel that if somebody is all, always just skiing or always just cycling or always just running, you get out of balance and you start to have issues. And athletes who, who tend to mix these up keep it in, in much better balance. The, the only thing I would warn and you see this with triathletes, is if you're always mixing it up, well, if, if you want to be in all these sports, that's great. But if your focus is on one of these sports and you're always mixing it up, you're going to experience what triathletes experience, which is they're pretty good at, at cycling, running, and, and swimming. They're not really good at any one of them. Yeah, that's totally true. And that's maybe my favorite thing about cross-country skiing is you can roller ski in the the non-snow months, but you have to run and bike and and swim and you know, rock climb and do whatever else in the in the the off season, the dry land season, to build as much fitness as possible, so that once we're on the snow, we can just focus on skiing. Okay, let me hit you with a hypothetical question then, Trevor, to follow up on this mixing modalities. We mentioned two a days. We've got this athlete; he's a cyclist or she's a cyclist, and that's their primary sport, and they're trying to get better at that sport but they don't have a lot of time. You've got two options, maybe a two hour window in the morning and another two hour window after work in the evening versus they can carve out a three hour block where they could do this mixed modality, run, bike, single session. What would you suggest or would you mix these two types of scenarios in strategically? So I'm gonna address this purely from a very practical standpoint. Because I, I do think when we talk about the two-a-days, there is things that we, we leave out of that equation, which is the time that it takes you to get ready, to get changed at the end of a workout to shower, which actually adds up to a lot of time. Time that sometime. Like if you say, I'm going to go out for a bike ride. That moment to when you get changed, get everything ready, get your bike ready, time how long that takes. I've done that. And when I'm quick, it's 15 minutes. Yeah. So it's not something like you go, oh, I'm going to get on the bike and then a minute later out on the bike. So thinking about people that are time crunched and want to maximize their time, my issue with the two-a-days is actually that means you're changing four times, twice to get ready, twice at the end of the workout. It means you're potentially showering twice. You're probably going to lose a lot of workout time with all that getting ready and, and getting changed. It's not the most efficient use of time. Right. 
And I think we forget that. And people go, oh, it's really efficient with time to divide it up, do two a days. Now, if you're mixing that with, say, a commute where you're going to have to get changed anyway, great. I think that's great. I recommend that to people all the time saying on your, your way to work, maybe do your interval or do an easy ride in the morning because you don't want to be sweaty at work. And then your way home, do your interval, something like that. Mm-hmm. You had to get changed anyway, so great. So me personally, to try to be the, the most effective with time, I would rather do the, the one workout and mix them up. So maybe spend some, go out for a run and then get on the bike. I think I'd be hesitant to get on the bike, do a long bike ride, and then go for a run for exactly what Adam was talking about of your form's probably going to be sloppier and you're, you're going to risk injury. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, Adam, it's been a pleasure to have you on Fast Talk. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Trevor. It's always fun talking with you guys. Adam, great having you on the show. It's been too long. Hopefully we can get you back. Yeah, I'll be I'll be down in Colorado some this summer. And if you guys ever make your way up to Bozeman, I will take you out cross-country skiing as long as we have snow. All right. That'll be a laugh fest. Sounds good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if we have snow. If we have snow. All right. Thanks again. Thank you, guys. Take care. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback, so join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Adam St. Pierre and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.